there'll be plenty of time afterwards for, for it. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, I was a I was a journalist for about 13 years um, before I became um, a professor. And as a professor, I was really always interested in digital technologies and how digital technologies were reconstituting information flows, particularly in local communities. And so that's um, sort of what I was doing and thinking about before I started this project. So I'll tell you a little bit about Madison, Wisconsin. It's in the center of the United States. Um, it's a mid-sized city of about 250,000 people. Um, it's fairly white, um, but the schools are all a majority minority, um, both black and brown students for the most part. Um, and it's a very media saturated city, unlike a lot of mid-sized cities um, in America at this point. There are, uh, there are three news organizations um, that are print-based. There's um, three magazines. There are, there are television channels. There's a whole bunch of different online-only outlets. And at the time of my study, which started in 2010, everybody was on blogs. Remember blogs? Which we still have, I guess, but we call them websites now. Um, and Facebook. Not Twitter so much there at this time for education. Um, but uh, for Facebook was, was certainly huge. So that's sort of um, what I was uh, doing and thinking about. I decided, okay, uh, so I need to find some kind, this is, I was starting my brand new project. I, was, I wanted to find um, an access pro uh, topic that I would, that would have a lot of people writing about. And so, because one of the things I wanted to do was document the media ecology landscape, which just means who's writing about this, um, where's digital technologies coming into play, uh, how, what's going on with the news organizations and both their traditional platforms, but also their online platforms. All right, so I landed on this topic. Um, it was a proposal, as uh, Mira had suggested, of a charter school that was only gonna educate black boys and girls in Madison from K through 12, but they wanted the charter school to be basically run by the school district and paid for by taxpayers, I should add. So I knew that this was gonna be super controversial, right? Because <clears throat> it was, remember, it was only gonna be educated by black boys and girls. And so this is the guy, Kaleem Kerr, and I mentioned him because I'll talk about him um, as we go through. But immediately ignited tons of discussion, especially mediated discussion, and so, we spent a summer, me and my team, documenting the ecology, which just means like who are gonna be the players that will be writing about this topic. And it seems like a summer's a long time to do this, but it, it took us a while to find all the blogs and, and the public Facebook material, for example. Okay, but second, um, I wanted to explore power in this ecology, so who's influencing whom, whose voices were left in, whose were absent, right? Because once you do the ecology, you're like, okay, great, now what? Like, what does this mean? So, so that was sort of my second thing. And so that seemed to me um, a pretty straightforward project at the time. You know, I was used to kind of doing big projects and then I quickly started realizing that this was gonna be much um, bigger <laughs> than I thought, and not just in um, a topical sort of way. So I knew that I was gonna to have to bone up on ed education policy. That, so remember, I was digital technology reporter before I was up on journalism studies. But so I needed to do ed policy. Um, I knew I needed to do um, race in media because of the race factor and the topic that I had chosen, which I had never done before. And I knew I also wanted to do something with networks and network analysis because I really wanted some of those pretty maps 
that they make that were actually going to reconstitute. I could visually see how social media was reconstituting um, uh, local information flows. And but I figured, you know, I got this handled, right? You know, I was a journalist. I'm super good at reading really fast, and I was going to do mainly in-depth interviews and focus groups. So I just kind of rolled up my sleeves and got into it. But then nobody showed up at my focus groups. Like I wanted to talk to all these black parents in particular, people who were disengaged from the information flows, because I wanted to find out, you know, those are the voices that were absent. I wanted to find out why were they absent. But they wouldn't show up. They didn't come, not for years. And so I asked this guy in town who's a community leader and a reverend, and his name is um, Dr. Reverend Alex G. And I figured, oh, I'll just put my request out on his Facebook page and the parents will just come because, you know, he's my informant and it'll be great. So I interviewed him. It was a great interview. And at the end of the interview, I asked him, um, yeah, can I do this? And he said, no, no, you can't do it. And I said, why? And he says, well, because I don't trust you. I, you haven't built trust with these communities. Why should we trust you as a white academic? Uh, what are you even going to do with these words? And so I've listened to that transcript sort of over and over again, always cringing at the frustration in my voice and the defensiveness I hear, because it seemed to me that people were complaining their voices weren't being heard. And here I was trying to include their voices in this big project. And also, when I was having these conversations with um, activists, they would show me these headlines and these stories, and they would, they would just kind of shake their head and say how racist they were. And I really didn't see it, right? I didn't understand what was racist um, about these headlines. Um, so I was like quickly realizing that this was going to be more than just me figuring out a new methodology or new topics. I knew that this was actually, I had to interrogate why I personally was having this disconnect between what I was hearing um, and what I was feeling about all of this. <clears throat> okay, so I, that meant that I needed to subject myself some, to some pretty intense social justice training, which I had never had before. You need to know that I, um, I not only look white, but I am very, very white um, inside as well. And I grew up in New Hampshire, which is, which is a very non-diverse state. Um, I think we, we had one um, Jewish kid in my school, and that was the extent of our diversity. And then I never really talked about race uh, until college. And really, my white privilege occupied me with nary a sense of its presence even. So that's sort of what I was dealing with. And I, I started realizing that, um, that in, my, in my journey, learning about my own race, that is a white person, I was going to have to get involved in a way that I always shied away from as a journalist and as a social scientist. And I think, think you all probably understand that um, very, very clearly. But when I'm talking about my journey here, I'm talking about um, not only reading and, um, and attending conferences like the White Privilege Conference, uh, but also, um, and, and I also audited a bunch of classes, but I'm also talking about um, volunteering around town and places where I could see what was and what was not happening. I'm also talking about mostly listening in a way that I had never really listened before. And in this process, my perspective, and with it my mindset, my paradigms, my social circle, my approach to teaching and research, and the way that I, I talk to journalists, and really my entire life transformed. So this is a really a book that sort of documents my own transformation. So in all, I spent 
uh, seven years writing this book, and I had about 17 graduate students in different teams along the way. <clears throat> we talked to about 120 plus people, including, um, well, we did three focus groups, because I will say that Dr. G, a couple weeks later, called me up, and he said, Sue, you know, I've communed with God, and I've realized um, that you're actually on the right path, so you can put that request on my Facebook page. And I'm like, oh, like, thank you, God. Like, yes. Um, and so I did get a bunch of parents through that, but mostly I got those parents through volunteering and creating and building trust in communities that I really had never stepped foot in before. We analyzed about 6,000 pieces of content, that's blog posts, um, Facebook posts, um, all the news articles, everything that was written about it. And we scaled the project to four other cities. So I wanted to see, is this just Madison with its media-saturated city and its highest concentration of PhDs in the country? Um, or is this kind of um, talk that I'm seeing happening in other places as well? And so we looked at, um, we actually looked at eight other cities, but they, they all had to be mid-size, attached to large universities or just outside large universities, because right, that affects the discourse when you have a really highly educated um, population. Um, they had to have um, really extreme racial disparities in the schools, and they had to have talked about them in mediated um, spheres, right? I needed to, something to study. But it turns out that it also matters that they were highly progressive, considered themselves um, reform-minded. So in the, in the United States, progressivism is about, uh, it's like a political ideology that goes beyond liberalism. It's really an ideology about reforming structure um, so that it's more egalitarian for all voices. Okay, that's important, right? Because we're talking about racial disparities here. And it also mattered that they had long um, histories of civil rights in these particular places. So the other four that we ended up keeping were Cambridge, Ann Arbor, Chapel Hill, and Evanston. Um, and for those of you who know the US, you'll recognize these as being very progressive places with long, long histories of civil rights. <clears throat> so I used this fairly new technique, I'm not gonna go too far into it, but it's called network ethnography, and I, and I say this because it's a mixed method approach and why it took so long, besides the fact that I had to take time out to do this special journey of mine, this personal journey, um, but, it, but it, it's very um, all-encompassing, and it includes developing um, network maps that I talked about that were super pretty, um, that, that could show me exactly who was talking to whom, where and which platforms. And then I used that information to figure out who I wanted to interview, who was being engaged in this new stream. <clears throat> so um, this is one of the maps that I did. And here, I answered my first question, like what does it look like for social media to reconstitute? So all of the pink that you see is all the social media dialogue. Each, each little node is a person who is contributing to the dialogue in some way. All right, and all of the red are the mainstream news outlets, both online and offline. So right away you can see, oh, look at all of that dialogue that's happening in social platforms. Yay, check, right? Okay, um, <clears throat> one of the things that we could see from these visual maps is that what's probably what you can already guess, that there were a lot of conversations happening that were not particularly connected, particularly to the policymakers who are making the decisions about the K through 12 schools. So we had all these echo chambers, right? I mean, that happens in all of our communities probably, right? Um, 
We could also see who was talking to whom. And I could see, for example, that journalists were talking mainly to the community leaders and the activists in town, right? Um, and not connected to these other conversations that were happening. And they used these people as punctuation points rather than as bridges into communities where lots of conversation was happening. Okay, they also um, could show me who is most influential informationally. So that was kind of cool about this, um, this type of technique. And I would expect that there, there would be a lot of reporters in this influence because remember we're talking about informational influence. But in fact, there's only one um, reporter who made it into our top 10, and that's this guy, DeFore, who's number four here. <clears throat> so um, the other people are all activists. And now remember, this, is, this is network stuff was done only in Madison. We didn't do it in the other four cities because I didn't have the money, basically. Um, so, but the other four cities were not as media saturated as Madison. So imagine that, right? Who's, who's gonna, who's, Leading and directing those conversations in those other places is all activists, which is both good and bad, but it's definitely an implication we need to think about. You could also see that the people who were usually traditionally the most um, influential or authoritative about the discourse in any particular place around schools tends to be the superintendent or the school members. But this data showed that in fact, those people were only influential in the mainstream traditional platforms and not on social media at all. So nobody's listened to the superintendent or the school board and all of these other spaces. Um, let's see. <clears throat> okay, so um, I'm just, I'm, I'm not gonna read a lot, but this is the only thing I wanted to read. And I wanted to read, this is the book. This is the book. And um, so the book is written as a hybrid kind of academic layperson book. So if you really don't care about network maps or you don't care about field theory and Pierre Bourdieu, which is, which is my theoretical framework, just skip to chapter four. Because chapter four is where it gets really interesting um, and it talks about the obstacles and the structures. And then chapter six is where I talk about um, recommendations and like real kind of on the ground things that we can do. So here I'm gonna read just a little bit from chapter four so you can see a little bit about how I was able to combine these different techniques into narrative and you can see some of the themes that were pretty dominant. So I'm gonna start with this scene um, of the boat through which the charter school was coming up where the school board had to decide they were gonna do it or they weren't gonna do it, okay? And this was in 2011. For weeks ahead of the vote, Colleen Kerr and the supporters of Madison Prep blanketed social media with pleas to come on out and let your voice be heard the Board of Education will listen. They just had to. The schools were failing their kids, and finally, people seemed to be taking note. Long dialogues on Facebook preceded that night, December 11th, 2011, uh, December 19th, 2011, with parents asking how they could get their children into the school and back and forth about the chances of the charter school proposal passing. Everyone knew that three BOE members had declared themselves against it and two for it, but the remaining two votes were unknown and people figured it could go either way. They strode into the auditorium, some full of cautious optimism, and others feeling as if they were on a fool's errand. But they all came anyway, and they spoke up one by one. They offered up personal experiences of racism, disparity, and inadequacies of the schools, and they laid out an argument in support of Madison Prep. But after several hours, they found themselves just sitting, listening, in stunned silence as one by one, the school board members read from prepared statements pulled out of pockets and bags. The members spoke of legalities associated with charter schools and teachers unions, disproportional expenses for a small segment of the population, blah, blah, blah. 
Little of the people's long hours of testimony seemed to be considered or even acknowledged in these prepared statements. Little of the people's words seemed to have been heard, or at least that's the way the attendees felt. And long after the Board of Education members had gone home, the verdict of the 5-2 no to Madison Prep hanging heavy in the air, the supporters of Madison Prep sat still with their disappointment, not quite successful in squelching the resentment choking them. Care rose to address the morose, defeated crowd. He reminded people to keep up the good fight, that they would just take the school to the people, do some fundraising, do it themselves. He urged people to run for school board to change up the power dynamics. He talked of filing a racial discrimination suit. He said, we're going to challenge the school district like they've never been challenged before, I swear to God. Slowly, people started to leave the room in trickles, comforting each other as they went, some talking to themselves, saying, I can't believe what I just saw. And they trudged out of the hall, back to their families. And as they left, and in the weeks and months that followed, the distrust sidled in, replacing that optimism. Care left too, and soon after left the Urban League, nurturing the seeds of an idea to privately fund Madison Prep, which, by the way, he just got funded. Um, five years later, five years later, in focus groups and interviews, people who had been at that moment spoke of that moment as a turning point for, for them, the moment where any the hope they'd had that the school district would somehow respond to the intense racial disparities flittered away. They spoke of that moment as the moment they gave up. And this theme of giving up echoed throughout our cities in Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, North Carolina, and Massachusetts. Some citizens refrained from participating in public forums about the opportunity gaps a problem plaguing each city. Those absences of voices carried into the media. When many of the local reporters in these cities approached black or brown parents to find out more about their children's experiences, they heard an earful. But when it came time to catch the source's name for publication, the answer was often no. Quote, honestly, it got to the point that I stopped trying, said one Wisconsin reporter. <clears throat> Few wanted to go on the record and have their names associated with negative information. Um, one network television reporter remembered making a beeline for black and brown community leaders in public meetings rather than seeking sources in neighborhoods because he realized that you could get these people to go on record a lot faster. One parent whom reporters frequently asked for comment understood this difficulty perfectly. She said, people are afraid of repercussions. I mean, I applied for jobs I didn't get because of my outspoken comments on certain topics that didn't make people feel comfortable. She added that people of color feel judged when they speak out with every word scrutinized and constant confrontation by random white people. <clears throat> Cynicism, weariness, fatigue, and frustration flowed from the focus groups we held with other black and brown parents. They told stories about offenses that they perceived as being racially motivated. Most of their stories had to do with their kids' schools, um, with um, being accused of being on drugs, for example, or working too much. They mentioned the difficulty of having a physical presence at meetings. They often learned about school hearings at the last minute only to find out the meeting was across town. And if they made it to the meeting, these meetings typically resulted in, well, nothing. They said one black man, so why would we bother anymore? At some point, you just give up. Over and over, we heard how the progressive politics in the cities inhibited good deliberation about solutions. A school board member in Ann Arbor described these dynamics. She says, oh, we love to talk. We're great in Ann Arbor. We're very smart people. We're very engaged. It's nothing for us to get 200 people in an auditorium around certain issues. I mean, that's just nothing. And schools, see, education is what we do in Ann Arbor. That's our income. It's our base. It's our livelihood. It's our brand. 
but we struggle. I mean, you know, we're quite a liberal town, but we're also very conservative. So when you start talking about race and disparity, you see very sick, ugly signs and evidence of how not liberal and not equitable we can be at times when it comes to those that are disadvantaged. The advantaged people in these cities, comfortable with reports and statistics and academic jar jargon, effectively dominated conversation <clears throat> while the institutional and organizational structures that perpetuated the disparities remained unchanged. Okay, so for me, that meant um, that all of this work really hit home to me as a, as a white academic, um, as a journalist, and as a citizen of this town, and as somebody who, teach, who teaches journalism. But it seemed to me that everything that I had always been about, my entire soul, had hurt entire groups of people. Right, that my, my whole being had been complicit in oppression. <laughs> that was really, really hard to kind of um, understand. And it was really um, difficult to convince people who were maintaining these very structures that were creating these um, inequities that to, to let them know that actually um, everything that you're about is hurting an entire, entire groups of people. That's a difficult thing to get across, right? Um, and so eventually, though, I realized that I was wrong um, and that everything um, that I hear and that I was doing, <coughs> excuse me, um, was, was actually that I was thinking about it the wrong way. And then when I do these talks in communities, particularly in the U.S., particularly in progressive communities, I always get people coming up afterwards to talk about the nefarious intentions of charter schools and how they're puppets for the Koch brothers and, and for conservatives. But everybody's missing a point, and the point is this, that when we replace our, our political, our ideological, our structural, whatever lens it is that we tend to approach all of our reporting with or all of our, um, our citizen or civic engagement with, and all of that baggage that comes with it with racial ones, we can actually make more of a commitment to reform because we st start to see the areas in which we've gone wrong. So I'm including journalists and researchers and professors and parents and teachers and activists and all of us um, in this assessment. So it's my argument in this book that is only by, by appreciating and working within these identities communicatively that we can work through these systemic obstacles. So I'm not arguing that reporters should stop striving for objectivity and balance, and I'm not arguing that white progressives should stop fighting vouchers, for example. But I am arguing that we consider the backgrounds of ourselves and our constituents, and we consider that maybe the status quo might be a broken way of doing things, um, and that the communication infrastructure around that status quo has helped reifying the power differentials that are within that. And I also argue that, therefore, it's the space within the public dialogues um, to do this work of reform. And that means the journalism, but it also means um, election debates and public hearings and all of that. But it's also within our more private spaces of communication as well, right? So um, the conferences that we're having or the meetings or the seminars that we're doing or the, or the parent-teacher conferences you have or the coffees that you have with your friends. <coughs> But it does mean giving up some power and giving it to people who don't look like us necessarily. So in the book, I talk a lot about um, how the progressive ideology, and you could probably swap that out with any kind of dominating ideology that's created a status quo over years, 
um, and how the ideology becomes the status quo, and that that entrenchment has meant the ways in which we talk about racial disparities have had to abide by this grand narrative um, that was put in place nearly a century ago for all of these cities that I looked at. <clears throat> and that whenever you have a grand narrative, it's very hard to sort of recast that grand narrative, right? So it's useful to understand that the ways in which the information stream was manipulated in these cities and how it reified that dominant way of thinking because of the routines that we have put in place over generations. How deadlines and meeting coverage routines privilege those voices who showed up with their credentials and the confidence to speak in grand city halls like the one in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for example. And that all of these habits have meant um, missed opportunities, uh, poor habits of information exchange and ultimately failed incomes. <clears throat> and they also meant that um, we lose chances of, with those highly networked influencers who could be bridges instead of punctuation points. Um, and especially how the constant failure to not only bring but also to listen to black and brown voices over time has resulted in this distrust. So one of the weird things about the data that we saw in all five of our cities was there's always this one white progressive, super prolific blogger, poster guy or woman um, who had ambitions um, to be elected to municipal office in some ways. <clears throat> and in the course of our study, the other five, they were all about a five-year period of study window, they all got elected. Uh, and so that was really weird to me at first until we really started analyzing the data. and. Um, I'll also say that there were also uh, black and brown people who were similarly prolific in their way, but they were challenging the status quo. So these five, these five were all really um, trying to protect the schools and trying to argue that racial disparities, for example, was all about poverty. And the minute you say the word poverty, it shuts down discussion about reform because, oh, well, how do we, how do we deal with that, right? But I do believe it was their constant presence in and their mastery of all of these different communication streams um, that got them elected. So they, they were definitely using this information um, and who it was networked with and with whom they got, and with whom that, that got them elected. And in particular, they could get their message out in front of the right people, right, the most influential voters, for example, over and over and over again. And they used it doing the tools that the policy makers themselves um, valued, right? So reports and, st and state, state, uh, statistics and um, data from the very institutions that were perpetuating these disparities. Um, so there's that. And then there was this other thing which I thought was super interesting was that we saw progressive activists with agendas dominating the conversation in all of these spaces, especially digital ones, right? Remember that first map? And I'll say that the social media space was a 36% larger conversation than our mainstream media space, right? So that means they, were, they had much more authority on this topic than the reporters did, right? Which, as reporters, we should all be kind of thoughtful about, I guess. Um, okay, so I called my last um, chapter Outcomes and Opportunities, and in it I detail how communication infrastructures can be unsettled with networked collaborations. And I talk pretty specifically in that chapter because I always hate it when people sort of give these sort of vague recommendations and you're left thinking, I have no idea um, what to do with this information. 
Um, so I talk about these kinds of things and I give kind of specific examples about that. Um, so for example, so this is how we can use data to sort of come at recommendations. These are four people in their information networks. The bottom two are reporters, the most prolific reporters on this. And the top two are our two top activists, and one's CARE, and the other is that white progressive blogger in Madison named TJ. And you can see that the red are all the policymakers. So everybody's citing them, everybody's talking to them. Those are all like the school board members and the superintendent and some other experts. The yellow are all the people the reporters are bringing into the conversation through their stories and their blogs and their Facebook posts. But look at all of the blue. All those blue people are not connected to the policymakers or the journalists, and yet they're having really intense, deliberative conversations in these spaces with really, um, what I think, concrete recommendations about how we might deal with um, disparities in different ways. And so my suggestion, and, and so we don't need to do network maps in anybody's town to know who the influencers are, right? All of you journalists know in your town who you go to to find out information. But my, one of my suggestions is thinking creatively about collaborations with different kinds of these informants to break into communities that you won't otherwise have access to because these people are not reading. They're not reading these reporters and they don't care about these reporters and they don't trust these reporters. And so one way to build trust, as I say, is, is use these informants in, in kind of different ways. Okay, so um, <clears throat> the other thing I kind of get pedantic about in the book is I talk a lot about the personal journey um, and how everybody needs to sort of understand where their privilege are, privileges are and where their privileges aren't. Um, and also bringing awareness um, about systemic power structures. So, um, so some of the ways I talk about following through is thinking about educating yourself, valuing different kinds of evidence, moving beyond just the sort of statistics and data which are important, but also valuing storytelling and um, experiential uh, backgrounds, um, questioning the structures, following through when you talk to people, even if you don't use their words, asking people usually quote to introduce you to their groups, reject game frames. Like all of our cities had some headline that said, whose side are you on for whatever proposal they were talking about? Um, showing up for positive stories. Um, I'm gonna just kind of go through. I have um, a white paper on my website for journalists specifically on suerobinson.org. If you go to community outreach and guide for journalists, it's about five pages of bullet points you know, and they're just ideas as ways to think about how you can incorporate this stuff into your routines without disrupting your entire life, right? Like, how can I do this when I already completely underpaid, they're asking me to do too much, and I already have to do all this stuff. So I think, um, I, th I try to think about that while I, while, when I made these um, recommendations. I worked with um, Kettering Foundation on these, which is a think tank uh, in Ohio. Okay, and so then I, well, the other big part of the book was I had to follow through, right? I had to figure out, are we doing on time? Good, okay. Um, I had to figure out like, okay, so what, what am I doing that um, is gonna change up and disrupt systems from within thinking about these, these networked understandings and stuff. Um, and so I actually realized I actually have quite a lot of power um, in my position as a journalism professor and just as a citizen so one of the things I did was I developed a new kind of class because I think journalism education is part of our problem. You know, we need to rethink journalism education and rethink particularly relationships to sources. 
So this is a service learning class, which means that um, I send my advanced reporting journalism students out into nonprofits that have youth after school, and they train these kids in journalism skills. So like audio editing, this is, they're doing um, a radio show here at a community station, um, video editing and interviewing and all of that. And that's so that we can teach black and brown kids how to amplify their own voices in, in different kinds of networked ways. I went back to all of those places, like the community centers where I finally got those focus groups and I told them what we did with their words. That was something I never did as a reporter. Like, you know, I just, I felt like I didn't have time. And even this, I felt like I didn't have time. But I made myself do this. And it turned out to be so great because all of these people, this was at a festival that one of the community centers were having that the director thought a lot of them would show up at. Um, and they did, they came by and they were, they were like so happy. I, it might've been the cookies. We had a lot of cookies there, but they were pretty, um, pretty stoked to see their, their words in a book, right? So that's kind of cool. Um, I also work with Kettering, with journalists internationally on how to cover race better. And um, as a citizen, I joined my kids' um, parent-teacher organization, called the PTOs, um, and I said, hey, we should do some social justice training with all the parents. And they were so interested. And so I do two a year, and I don't even run them, I just organize them, because I know people in town. And like, this one was how to talk to your kids about race, and 100 people showed up to do that. So there's this real kind of need um, to do that, and I think um, this is a great kind of journalist um, thing, and you get sources, you get stories, uh, and it's, it's, it's changing the system. And then I talk about race um, with my family and kids. Uh, and all that, so. All right, great, so I wanted to leave enough time um, for questions and stuff, because I know you might have different questions than what I might um, have been talking about here, so. Thank you so much, Susan.